Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. We are in 1 Samuel chapter 14 tonight, so if you have your Bible, you can open it to 1 Samuel chapter 14, or mobile device. If you have, need a Bible, you can get the attention of our faithful usher, who is bringing them around, he will throw one to you in, in the spirit of the World Series. <laughs> and you can be a Dodger. <laughs> I know, that's bad. <laughs> let's, uh, let's do this. Let's pray tonight, and then we're going to get into uh, 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 the word as we begin. So, Father, we thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us. And Lord, as we turn our attention to you, Lord, it's, it's Jesus that we would see tonight. So we would ask you, Lord, that you would do as you said and walk in the midst of your candlestick here at Calvary Hudson Valley. Lord, we uh, are thankful to be a part of the body of Christ. We're thankful, Lord, that you've put your spirit and your lamp here. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us your Holy Spirit and your word. And we ask you, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what you want to say to us tonight individually and collectively. Lord, that we would uh, be salt and light in our, our world, in our families, in our communities, in our workplaces, and that we would uh, be changed ever more into the image of Jesus by the power of your Spirit through your Word. So would you hear us tonight, Lord, and would you help us, uh, in spite of our weakness, Lord, that you would show yourself strong. We thank you for your grace towards us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read verse 1. It says this. It says, Now it came to pass upon a day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said unto the young man that bare his armor, he said, come and let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side, but he told not his father. And Saul tarried in the uttermost part of Gibeah, the furthest back place, the hidden place, under a pomegranate tree, it sounds nice, which is in Migron. And the people that were with him were about 600 men. And Ahiah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, Eli now gone, uh, and that system has been condemned by God, but the fragment remains of it are still there with Saul. It says that he was wearing an ephod, and the people knew not that Jonathan was gone. Those that study human productivity tell us that there are three different types of workers or three different types of people that you might find uh, in an organization or in a workplace. Uh, the first of those would be the rarest of those, which is the leader. And that is uh, kind of the person who's the strong visionary, the person who their very personality is that they can see what could be and they see possibilities and they're driven to get there. And those are big picture people. They see things from 35,000 feet and they hate details. They don't get into the minutia of how it's going to work or if it can work. They just see that it can work and they are the leaders. So that's their thing. They have no time for details. The second type uh, of person that you would find is uh, called the doer. 
And that's the person that gets things done. They need to be moving. They're given a task and they don't stop until they've completed it. They're driven by action and they bring forth a finished product. Their favorite company is Nike. They live by the slogan, just do it. They are the doers. They hate interruption. They hate indecision. They hate roadblocks. They're proactives. They're first movers. That's the doer. The third person... Different from the other two is the thinker. And the thinker, their favorite question is how. They're driven by systems, processes, plans, procedures, and efficiency. They love roadmaps, planning, problem solving, strategy meetings, procedures, and they live by the motto, do it right or do it twice. The, the thinker cannot move until the plan is perfect and the path is plotted, and it is the thinkers of the world that are responsible for giving us forms and papers, Excel sheets, charts, graphs, and of course, the Dewey Decimal System. <laughs> now, now, leaders and doers do not typically blend well with thinkers. And the reason is because thinkers often slow down the action. But the issue is that the leaders and the doers desperately need the thinkers because leaders and doers will put the cart before the horse every single time. I have a friend, uh, he's here tonight, Vinny's in the front row. He is a doer by nature, get it done. And he was telling me today that he rented uh, a trencher because he was running an electrical line from, from his house to his, a barn or something that he's building out in the yard. And his wife was helping him. They were working together. And as he started with the trencher, she said, don't you think we should like draw a line? He goes, no, we don't need no line. He said he dug that trench four times. <laughs> <You know? laughs> he should have listened to the thinker. You know, <laughs> Doers and leaders need thinkers, but Thinkers get frustrated with leaders and doers because of the wasted moves and the inefficiency that they so often cause. Now, a good leader knows that they need both, okay? If you have all doers around you, then you have a chaotic whirlwind that looks like disorganized progress. Things happen, but it's chaotic, if you have all thinkers around you, you have an organized process, but you have zero profits, and you're buried in papers, policies, procedures, and pauses. Doers, and people know what I'm talking about, doers and thinkers don't usually get along. So what happens over time is that thinkers tend to multiply in a place and doers and leaders leave. And thus, you know, you see things like Xerox, Kodak, different things that rise and fall. They're all thinkers. They're ISO 9000 compliant. There's papers and forms everywhere. And the innovation and the leadership is gone. They went somewhere else because they couldn't stand the pauses anymore. Now, listen, we are all in some way leaders, okay? We're leaders of our homes or of our families, there is a fear, sphere in which we are leaders. Common sense tells us that we are to be thinkers, that there is a place for planning and thinking and going through things. But the Bible is emphatic that we are to be doers. 
That comes up over and over again in the scriptures. James tells us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Jesus said that the person whose house is going to stand is the person who does these things. Jesus said concerning those that are watching for his return and that will be found faithful when he comes are those who when he comes, he finds them so doing. And so the Bible encourages us emphatically that no matter where we fall on that spectrum in our personality, that we are all to have the attitude of the doer, okay? Now, why do I open that way? Because what we see in this complex text is that we see that Saul is very much a thinker and his son, Jonathan, is very much a doer. We saw that last week when Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines and then Saul messed it all up. You know, Jonathan went for it. And here, what we see of Jonathan in the very first verse is that he looks around, he sees his father sitting in the back of the company underneath a pomegranate tree, being waved with a palm leaf and fed grapes. And he sees the old guard system of leaders that are old and useless around him. And he sees that nothing is going to happen. And so he decides and he says to his armor bearer, he says, hey, we've got to do something. So let's go over to the garrison of the Philistine. Everybody say, let's go. That's right, let's go. We got to do something here. We can't just sit and wait for something to happen. He does it. Now, we're told that there is a conflict. It tells us right there in verse one that there was an enemy. It's known as the Philistines, okay? The Philistines were the perpetual enemy of Israel during this point in their history. The Philistines were foreign occupiers that were occupying the land of Israel, and they had become the dominant force. So these are not descendants of Abraham. They have no right to be living in this territory, but they have gained a foothold, which became a stronghold, and now they have overpowered the people of God that actually own the land, and God's people have become servants to the Philistines. And thus, the Philistines were a, a dominant force on three levels. Number one is that they were an invasive force. They were possessing some of the best of the land. They had all of the coastlands. If you look at Israel on a map, you'll see that it borders the Red Sea. And the cities of the Philistines were all of those territories that were along the Red Sea. It was prime real estate that the Philistines were holding on to and the Israelites had no access to. They were invasive. They were also a corrupting force. And they were corrupting in that they brought in the practices of their false pagan gods and ideologies, and as those things permeated into the lives of God's people, it became a a force that weakened them spiritually. We see that very clearly through the person of Samson, who by this time has come and gone. Okay, Samson was intoxicated and enticed by the Philistines, and it robbed him of his strength. It's just a picture in one man of what was happening in the entirety of the nation. They were being robbed of their power and their strength. And then thirdly, the Philistines were a restrictive force. 
They were, in Israel, suppressing the progress of God's people. They were suppressing the freedom of God's people, and they were robbing them of their wealth and keeping them even from their defenses. We learned at the end of the last chapter that the Philistines had called an arms ban on the Israelites, and none of them were allowed to have weapons. Can you imagine that an invading guest host has power over those who own the land, to say that you have no right to arm yourselves or defend yourselves. And so the Philistines were a dominant force in all of those ways. And the problem was, is that Israel more or less resigned themselves to it. Their attitude was, it is what it is. Have you ever said that before? It is what it is. It became the status quo. Now, I ask you this question tonight to bring it to you and I personally, is what are the Philistines in your life? Because every Old Testament example has a New Testament principle attached to it. And so as the Philistines invaded the territory that was God's people then, there are invading forces, dominant forces like Philistines that get into our lives and our existence and they do the same three things. There are things that take up territory in our life. Sometimes it's the prime territory, the first fruits of our thinking in the morning. Where does it go? Who gets the strength of our day? Sometimes it's a corrupting force. The things that we are allowing into our lives or that have taken hold upon us are robbing us of our strength and our vitality and our vision and our spiritual senses and sharpness because they're not allowing us to move forward in those things. We're corrupted by them. And also, they stop our progress. We haven't gone anywhere in our lives for God's glory, his kingdom, or our calling because of the Philistines that we've allowed access into our hearts, and thus we are made to be growing and advancing, but instead we are languishing. And here's the truth, is that if you have a heartbeat here tonight, then you have Philistines in your land somewhere, okay? And here's the problem with that, is that Philistines are not going to go away on their own. The things in your life that are keeping you back that are holding you down, that are keeping you from moving forward, they are not going to go away by themselves. And not only that, but they're not content to stay where they are. As long as they are allowed to exist and they are not beaten back, they will continue to take more ground. They will invade more of your time and strength. They will corrupt you further and tap you of your energy. And they will suppress you from your progress and take away the time that is your life. They will not there. Now understand this, that the battle is the Lord's, okay? But he's not going to fight it for you. He will help you. He will show you who the enemy is. He will give you wisdom to know what to do. But what does he call us to do? To be doers, right? Let's go. It's time to go. It's time to do something. Listen, God will show you, okay, that you're unhealthy, but he will not remove the extra portion from your plate. God will show you that you're spending too much time watching Netflix, but he will not make you stop watching it. God will show you that you're spending too much time scrolling, watching indulging in social media feeds and internet things, but he won't make you stop doing it. 
And God is not going to control even the amount of Bible reading you do that would help you on the other side. There is a part that we have to play. And so you, like Jonathan, need to see what's going on in your life and make a decision at some point and say, let's go. The Philistines have been here far too long. And so Jonathan's faith action, all right, is for us an example of how we get things done in our lives spiritually to beat back those forces, okay? So how in the world do we become doers when something needs to be done on any level, whether it's personal, it's in my family, it's in my church community, it's in my larger community or in my nation? How do things get done? Number one, it starts with a decision, It starts at the moment that you wake up, like Jonathan did, look around and see the stagnancy and the slumber that has come upon everyone else, and you say, though everyone else sleeps, let's go. You look at the people around you, and you say, we cannot sit here, we must do something. The second thing that we see Jonathan do that's paramount is that Jonathan does not ask for permission. Did you notice there it says twice, once in verse 1 and then again in verse 3. It says that he did not tell his father Saul that he was going. And that even the, the rest of the people around him, no one knew that Jonathan was gone. There was something in his heart that he knew that if he asked for permission to do what needs to be done, that somehow he would be shut down. And it's so important that you and I understand that no one is going to give you permission to move forward in your life. I know we talked about this back when we did wave cutters back a couple of months ago. You know, is that no one's going to give you permission in your life. If you ask, can I do this? People will either say, no, you can't. Or they'll say, yes, you can, but first you need to. And they'll put roadblocks and hurdles up in front of you. But no one's going to give you permission. You guys know that, because I've brought it up several times over the years, you know, that I, I've, always, I've always had a liking for Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now, I know he's not a believer. I've been told he's an immoral man and, and, and all that stuff. I don't know him. I've never met him. I don't know much about his personal life. I've kind of seen his career. I think the first action movie I ever saw was an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. And ever since then, I was like, that guy, that's a man. That's cool. You know, like just as a young, a young boy. But one of the things that I learned about him is that, that he, he got into bodybuilding when he was 15 years old. And when he turned 18, he was um, forced to serve a year in the Austrian military. He was a citizen of Austria, and thus he had to serve in the Austrian military. But he was already into bodybuilding, and it was his goal to come to America and compete in bodybuilding competitions. And so here he is, he's he's serving, and he had an opportunity to compete in a bodybuilding competition in Europe that the winner of would get a trip to America to compete in the Mr. Universe, which then would lead to Olympia and and so so on and so forth. And he really wanted to go, but he knew that there was no way he was going to be granted leave from his stay in the military to go compete. So here's what he did. On a Friday afternoon when when duty ended, he went AWOL. He snuck off the base and he hitchhiked and got on cargo trains and traveled a few hundred miles to the place where the competition was. He competed all day Saturday, won the competition, then took trains and hitchhiked back and snuck back into the military base. Now he knew that he wasn't going to get away with it and he didn't. He was caught, he was put in their, you know, confinement, but they didn't know what to do with him because at the same time they had to punish him for what he did, 
they liked the publicity that they were getting that he won the competition. You know, so they took, him, took it lightly on him and it went forward. But, but, but that's just, sometimes you can't ask permission. Sometimes you just got to know what has to happen. You got to know what it is that you need to do. And you just got to do it and know that it's going to work out on the other side. Don't always feel like you need to ask for permission. Just do what God is calling you to do. Jonathan looked around. He saw nothing's going to happen. He, so he thought to himself, let's see what we might do. Now look with me at verse four, because this is so important. Anytime that you want to stand up and move forward in your life or in the things of God or to, to, to work for a cause that you feel is important or from the Lord, watch this, verse four. It says that between the passages by which Jordan or Jonathan sought to go over unto the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on the one side and a sharp rock on the other side, and the name of the one was Boses, and the name of the other was Sina. Now, I love this, this picture, and you know, the Bible doesn't give a ton of details, but I believe that when it does give details, there's a reason for it. And so you kind of picture in your mind that he's walking through this crag, this trail that leads between these two kind of cliff sharp rock passages, and he's passing right through the middle to get from where he was to where he's going. And understand this, that anytime you want to move forward in your life, again, it doesn't happen automatically. There's a decision, and then there's a journey to a destination, And oftentimes, it's a lot like what Jonathan is passing through right here. He's got a very narrow passageway, and there's sharp danger on one side and sharp danger on the other side, and it's important that he stays focused until he arrives at where he needs to be. The names of these two crags are given to us. One is called Bozes and the other Sina. Bozes, interestingly, it means shiny, and Sina means thorny crag. And I find that so significant because what happens every time in your life you decide you've had enough and you're going to do something is that there will be a thousand things that try to distract you, shiny things. You know, oh, well, you know, I could go down that road, but let me first maybe just secure a couple things I've had on my bucket list for a while and I'll get around to it later. Listen, those distractions get real loud when you stand up to move forward in what God has called you to do. The other thing is the thorny places. Jesus said that the thorns are the cares of this life, the worries of this world, and the desire for riches and other things. They're detractions. You know, you're on your way, and and you feel like God has called you to start a business for his namesake or for your purpose sake, whatever it is. And all of a sudden, you get detracted into, well, I just need to make business cards and get my car painted with the logo. And you you just get detracted from what really matters in in the moment. And so Jonathan passes through these two things. and, And I believe that the Holy Spirit would say to us, listen, when God calls you to go, when he calls you to do something, don't be distracted by shiny things or the cares of this life. You keep your eyes on what God has called you to do, and you go after it with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and all of your strength. Well, notice what happens Next, in verses 5 and 6, it says this. It says that the forefront of the one was situate northward over against Michmash and the other southward against Gibeah. And Jonathan said to the young man that bore his armor, come and let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised, for it may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. 
There's a couple of things here that I think are of utmost importance. Number one is this, is that it says that Jonathan regarded these Philistines as uncircumcised. And the reason why that's important is because it reveals Jonathan's motive in what he's doing. He is not being divisive. He is not being condescending to his father or disrespectful in any way. We're going to see as Jonathan's story plays out that he was the most devoted person to his father. So he's not in any way trying to upstage the kingdom or take it unto himself. When he uses this word uncircumcised, he is acknowledging that these Philistines have no place in Israel's land. He sees them for what they are, and it reveals that his purpose and motive behind doing is God's will in heaven and on earth, not his agenda, his kingdom, or for his glory. And I think that's a very important guiding light for you and I as we discern what it is that God wants us to do or that we do what needs to be done is that we realize it's not for our sake. It's for his sake. It's for his name's sake. It's for his kingdom's sake. It's for our family's sake. It's for our church's sake. Sometimes for our country's sake, the things need to get done and that we see things in their proper perspective and that our motives be right. The other thing that Jonathan acknowledges in this is that resources aren't really that critical of an issue with God. He says, hey, listen, there's how many of us? Two. And there's how many of them? Sand of the seashore. No big deal. We don't need more stuff. We don't need money. We don't need more weapons. We don't need an army. If God wants to work for us, if we're on his side of things and what we're doing, then God will be with us and he can deliver, whether it be by many or by few. The motive is of the utmost importance. Now, notice in verse 7, it says that his armor bearer said unto him, Do all that is in your heart, turn you, behold, I am with you according to your heart. Isn't it amazing how faith inspires followers? I mean, here Saul has to manipulate and kind of compare pulse people to serve with them. But Jonathan, he just has faith. He says, let's see what God can do. And his faith inspires people to just come alongside and risk their lives to follow him. Then Jonathan said, we will pass over unto these men and we will discover ourselves unto them. And if they say thus unto us, then tarry until we come to you. Then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say thus, come up to us, Then we will go up, for the Lord has delivered them into our hand, and this shall be a sign unto us. So Jonathan does what is absolutely necessary anytime you want to step out in life, is that he crafts a plexiplan. And you can write that down in your notes if you want to, as that he has a plexiplan. In other words, he has a strategy that leaves place for God to either move him forward or pull him backwards. He essentially says to his armor bearer, he says, hey, let's stick our heads up and let them see us like a game of whack-a-mole. You know, we'll kind of like pop our heads out and they can see us and then we'll listen to what they say. So we'll speak and then we'll listen and we'll respond according to what happens, not according to what we think or want. And so If they say to us, you stay there and we'll show you a thing or two, then we will get out of here and we'll count it that God is not in this. But if they say to us, you guys come up here, come here, we'll show you something, then we'll take them up on their challenge and we'll accept that God is with us. And what they're doing is that they are prayerfully moving in faith 
and yet leaving themselves open to be led by the Spirit of God. And I can't tell you how important this is, yet how difficult it can be sometimes. Because we would so much rather God give us a script of how things are going to go from start to finish, rather than that he would work with us in the moment and lead us by his Spirit. But the ways of God are often Spirit-led and not scripted. Meaning that God will move us a step and then he'll cause us to listen to him as to what we're to do when we get into that moment. How many of you have ever in your mind crafted a conversation with an individual and you've come up with a script of everything that you're going to say to them when you talk and then you get into the conversation and the demeanor is such that everything that you plan to say isn't fitting in that moment, but you say it anyway because it was your script. You ever do that? Or am I the only one, you know, you know, and, and then you, then you, you're done and you're like, what did I do that for? You know, that did not go at all. Like what I was going to, no, 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 no. Listen, we're to be spirit led, meaning that, you know, you would get into a conversation and then you would put something out and then you'd see what comes back. And, and, and there's a moment by moment thing. And it's like that in everything in life. We make a plan and then we take a step and then we say, Lord, is this where, is this what, is this how? And we walk in the spirit and not just according to our plans. There's a big difference between Saul and his father. I mean, Jonathan and his father, Saul, in this, is that he has a plexa plan. He's like, let's see if God is in this, if he leads us the next step. And sure enough, God does lead him the next step. Watch this. It says in verse 11, it says that both of them discovered themselves unto the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, behold, the Hebrews come forth out of the holes that they have hid themselves in. And the men of the garrison answered Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said unto his armor bearer, oh, come up after me for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. What amazing courage and amazing faith to say, oh, God's in it. Let's go. And so Jonathan, watch this climbed up upon his hands and upon his feet and his armor bearer after him. And they, that is the Philistines, fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer slew after him. So you kind of get the picture that Jonathan was going first. He was taking him down and then the armor bearer would come and finish the job, you know? And so they just kind of plow through all of these guys. But I want you to understand in verse 11 uh, through 13 there, something very important. And that's this, is that If we're going to go, if we're going to move, if things are going to happen in our lives, then there must be follow through, meaning that we can't wake up one morning, have a cup of coffee, be full of energy and say, I'm going to change my life today. (laughs) And then by noon, we're ready for a nap and to fall back into old patterns and habits. But if we're going to make a resolve before God and say, things have got to change in my life, things have got to change in my habits, things got to change in my family, things got to change in my country then there must be follow through as we plan to walk with him and see what God would lead us to do. The other thing is notice that it says that Jonathan climbed up on his hands and on his feet. Is that not only will there need to be follow through, but understand that anytime you want to make a change, or if you want to move from where you are to where you need to be, or if you want to lead change in some way, that there is going to be a climb and it's not necessarily going to be easy. A couple of years ago, we were in the Outer Banks and we visited the Wright Brothers Museum 
there uh, where they took their first flight. It was like a, a whole minute and a half or something like that. As they, they, they finally succeeded. And we learned all this stuff about the Wright brothers and their journey to uh, kind of create what has become the aviation system that we used to enjoy pre-COVID, you know, and the whole thing. But, but, but the, thing, the thing that they learned when they were asked about the whole process, uh, what, what took so long and all the failed attempts and all the tries and the different calculations, and they were asked, well, what was the biggest factor uh, that, that, that was the delay? What took so long? And the answer was this. They said that they miscalculated the amount of force that it would take to break through the lower level air. In other words, they, 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 once, once they got to a certain altitude, then they could use wind currents and, and kind of their position and their altitude, and they could kind of just soar. It didn't take a whole lot of, of, of strength to keep going once they were there, but they underestimated the amount of force it took to break through onto that level. And I find that so often that's why things end up being sabotaged in people's lives, they, they want to do something. They know they're not where they're supposed to be, whether it just be in their heart or their situation. And, and they, they want to make a move, but oftentimes they underestimate the amount of force that it takes to get off the ground and get things going. You ever look at someone who like runs a large company or does something, you know, that's just massive and you wonder, how do they do that? You know, how do they get there? And it seems like they do so much and yet it's easy for them and the whole thing. Listen, once you get there, it's not always all that hard, but sometimes the amount of force to get off the ground and get things going. And you ask someone who's wildly successful that spends half their time on vacation, you say, how do you do this? Well, they say, well, for the first 10 years, I didn't sleep, <laughs> you know, because there's a force, there's something that has to happen. And Jonathan said, if God's in it and we're called to do it, then we're going to finish it. We're going to do it and we're going to be done. And so it says in verse 14, it says that that first slaughter, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, was about 20 men within, as it were, a half acre of land, which a yoke of oxen might plow. And there was a trembling in the host, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison and the spoilers, they also trembled and the earth quaked, so it was a very great trembling. Now, I love this because when Jonathan did what God called him to do, God brought all of the forces and momentum of heaven behind him to open the door for change to happen on a greater level. It says that there was a trembling and a shaking in both the Philistines, that is the enemy, and among the Israelites, that is those who had the right to the land, they were the ones that needed to fight the battle. Is that God stirred things up and he made the way for more things to happen. It was one small victory, but it resulted in a huge shaking. The whole system shook. The whole entire system was stunned. Now, this is as big right here, this move of Jonathan, as when David took down Goliath. It was the same thing. It was just kind of different. It wasn't one giant with everybody watching. It was Jonathan kind of going secretly. No one knows that he's gone. But once the results come in, things are stirred up in such a way that the momentum shifts greatly in the favor of God's people. It'd be like they're standing, God's people, in front of a wall. 
And all of a sudden, Jonathan just charges the wall and he breaks through the wall and he opens it. It was unopened and, and he just breaks through, he pierces through, penetrates. And, and the, the enemy's stunned. They're like, oh my goodness. And the people of God are stunned. Oh my goodness. And here now is the opportunity for them to go in and finish the job. Jonathan has paved the way. Now, at this point, verse 15, you can draw a line underneath verse 15 in your Bible and you get part two of the story. Part one is faith. Part one is action. Part one is the doer at work. Part two is failure. Part two is the thinker who screws it all up, who misses the opportunity and turns a perfect opportunity into a net zero at the end. Watch Saul's response in verse 16. It says that the watch, and, and, and so here's the second message. You get two messages tonight. The first one is how to be a doer, you know, and you get all those things. Don't ask permission, you know, go in faith and all that. Now you get Jonathan or Saul, and now it's how to fail, how to screw up a perfectly good opportunity. Watch verse 16. It says that the watchman of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked and behold, the multitude melted away and they went on beating down one another. And so the Philistines get so upset here that they start killing each other. And Saul said to the people, go, get them. This is our chance. Grab your swords. Get to the battle. Get the tanks. Get the catapults. Get everyone. He says, number now and see who's gone from us. And when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. This is the moment you move, okay? This is the moment where the rhythm of heaven is saying, get up and go. And you must understand that there are times that God quickens us and there is momentum and an opportunity for us to do something, to stand up and do something in our lives. And how we respond in that moment makes or breaks the outcome. Moses was there on the Red Sea with the army of the, the Egyptians behind them and all the people of God standing there surrounded. And the people were saying, Moses, what are we going to do? We're all going to die. And it says in Exodus that Moses lifted up his hands to pray and ask God what to do. And God quickly shouted, Moses, put your staff in the water and go. <laughs> okay. All right. There's a time when it's time to go. It's time to move. Okay. Jonathan, in this instance, he knew that it was time to move. It was time to go. When David killed Goliath, there was no time to throw up a prayer and, and make a plan and see if it's going to work. The momentum of heaven was there and it's time to go. It's time to move. It's time to do something. Saul says, give me the analytics. I want the spreadsheets. Take a census. Let's see how many people there are. I want to know who's gone. What is going on here? I want a full briefing in the situation room right now. We got to figure out what's going on here. Listen, when it's time to go, you go. Don't fall into the analysis paralysis. That's what happened to Saul. Now watch this, verse 18. It says, and Saul said to Ahiah, bring hither the ark of God. For the ark of God was at that time with the children of Israel. And it came to pass while Saul talked to the priest that the noise that was in the host of the Philistines went on and increased. And Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Okay. So not only does Saul strike when the iron's cold, <laughs> but now his second strategy is pray. No, don't pray. 
you know, he calls for the priest. He says, let's ask God what we should do. And the priest begins. So the priest is like, dear Lord, we come to you humbly and we ask you that you would please help us to know what to do in this. And then, and then they, they hear the, oh, in the battle and they hear the swords clanging and Saul's getting anxious. He's like, pray faster, pray faster, you know? And he's like, <laughs> you know, and, and, and finally Saul goes, enough. All right, that's enough prayer. You prayed, we got to do something. Ready, set, aim. You know, <laughs> ready, fire, aim. <laughs> so he says, don't pray. You want to pray? Don't pray. <laughs> Verse 20. So Saul and all the people that were with him assembled themselves and they came to the battle and behold, every man's sword was against his fellow. And there was a very great discomfiture, big battle, a lot of chaos, a big cloud. Moreover, the Hebrews that were with the Philistines before that time, which went up with them into the camp from the country roundabout, even they also turned to be with the Israelites that were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel, which had hid themselves in Mount Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, even they also followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed over unto Beth-Avon. And so uh, they, they, they finally get in there. They gain a small victory. They gain a little bit of momentum. I want you to see something. It said it twice. I don't know if you caught it. But it said it back up in uh, verse 15, and then it says it down here in, uh, where is in the verses we just read. It says that the Philistines, it says that they were fighting against each other. Every man, it says that he was fighting against his fellow. Did you catch that? Yeah. You know, th there's, an amazing, there's an amazing thing that happens when you don't have God as the forefront of your vision and what you're looking at in your life, is that you get confused as to who the real enemy is. And that's kind of what happens to the Philistines. They don't know God, and so therefore they have no foundation of trust for their fellow, for their citizen, for their brothers. And thus when things kind of heat up, they turn on one another, and they end up killing each other, and Israel doesn't have to do half of the work. I saw a political cartoon that, that paints this out, and it kind of tells the story of what's going on today, right now in our country. It, the cartoon is like this. It's of a king, and he's with his son, the prince, and they're standing on the palace wall, and all of the, the citizens of their kingdom are storming the palace. And they have torches and pitchforks, and you can see that they're obviously angry. And the king looks at the son with a smile, and he just says, we don't have to fight them, son. All we have to do is convince the pitchfork people that the torch people are trying to take away their pitchforks and they'll kill each other. And isn't it exactly what's going on in our society right now? Listen, understand this, that especially for you and I, okay, we are, first of all, paramount, primal, we are Christians, meaning that we are blood-bought sons and daughters of the true and living God. And we've been unified through the cross of Christ to people that don't look like us, they don't talk like us, they don't think like us, they don't have the same background as us, they are nothing like us at all, and yet there is a bond that's greater than family because the blood of Christ links us as one. We are Christians first. Secondly, we are human beings, right? Meaning that we understand the sanctity that is life. We're humans. Third, on the priority list. Third, we are Americans. 
means that we are citizens of the United States of America. Every one of us that is a citizen is a citizen of the United States of America. Those things are primal. Christian, human, American, okay? Now, way down that list, we are Republicans and Democrats. We have opinions about taxation and foreign policy and domestic policy and all of those. That's way down the list. But when we get consumed with what divides us way down here and we forget about what unites us way up here, then we become enemies of one another when we are not enemies of one another. And those that would usurp and take power and authority over us laugh and say, all we have to do is convince them that this color hates this color, that that class hates that class, and that this group is trying to take this group's resources from them, and they'll just kill each other. And Jesus said it best. He said that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And we find ourselves in the place modeling what the Philistines were doing. That right now, we, who are being invaded, are killing each other. When the momentum could be shifting in our favor, on the contrary. Well, watch Saul again. And this is how to fail uh, number three or number four. And that's in verse 24. It's purchase more red tape. Just make, make it harder for people. Watch verse 24. It says that the men of Israel were distressed that day. For Saul had adjured the people saying, cursed be the man that eats any food until evening. That's smart. Let's go into battle and let's fast. Well, that sounds spiritual. That I may be avenged of my enemies. So none of the people tasted any food and all they of the land came to a wood and there was honey on the ground. And when the people were coming to the wood, behold, the honey dropped, but no man put his hand to his mouth for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan heard not when his father charged the people with the oath, wherefore he put forth the end of the rod that was in his hand and dipped it in a honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes were enlightened. So Jonathan eats, he gains some strength, not hearing his father's command. Then answered one of the people and said, your father straightly charged the people with an oath saying, cursed be the man that eats any food this day. And the people were faint. Then said Jonathan, my father has troubled the land. See, I pray you how my eyes have been enlightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much more if happily the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found for had there not been now a much greater slaughter among the Philistines. And they smote the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon and the people were very faint. Now watch this verse 32. When you impose unscriptural restrictions upon people, all you do is prolong a greater sin that will come later on. It says that the people flew upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground and the people did eat them with the blood. That was absolutely forbidden. Then they told Saul saying, behold, the people sin against the Lord and that they eat with the blood. And he said, you have transgressed. Don't you love Saul? Roll a great stone unto me this day. Let's tell the clergy that they can't get married. That sounds really spiritual. Let's tell them that it's holy to stay chaste and to not express themselves in their God-given sexuality. And we'll just have them hold that back for the sake of their devotion. Well, you see where that leads. <laughs> when you impose 
restrictions upon people that God has not placed upon people, you are prolonging a greater sin that will come later on. And it's so important that we understand that, especially as parents. As we raise our kids, sometimes in the name of sounding spiritual, we put roadblocks and restrictions upon them that aren't of God. It's just a suppression of their personality that we maybe don't understand because they're different than we are. And all we're doing is prolonging a greater rebellion that will come once they have the power to do what they want. It's so important that we know what God wants. I find it interesting that it was honey that Jonathan tasted. Because often throughout the Bible, the word of God is likened unto honey. It says that it's sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. In Psalm 119 or Psalm, one, or Psalm 19, it says that the word is like honey. And the word is what helps us to understand. It opens, it enlightens our eyes to help us understand what is wise in the way that we should go and the way that we should fight. Saul makes a huge error. So now Saul has to institute another step to fix the problem that he caused by instituting a step that wasn't necessary in the first place. Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, bring every man his ox and every man his sheep and slay them here and eat. And sin not against the Lord in eating with the blood. And all the people brought every man his ox with him that night and slew them there. And Saul built an altar unto the Lord. The same was the first altar that he built unto the Lord. And Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and spoil them until morning light and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatsoever seems good to you. Then said the priest, let us draw near hither to God. And Saul asked counsel of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he answered him not that day. Listen, don't move without prayer. And then when you get into trouble, think that God is going to then answer and tell you, Lord, how did we get here? You walked there. And so Saul said, draw near hither and the chief of the people and know and see wherein this sin has been this day. So he says, well, God's not answering, so it must be someone else's fault. For as the Lord lives, which saves Israel, though it be Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people that answered him. In other words, Saul says, the reason why God's not answering my prayer right now is because somebody ate today. Somebody ate food during the battle. And that's why God's not answering. And so he says that even if it turns out that it's Jonathan, he will die for this because we need God right now. Listen, listen, okay, think, okay. Saul knew that it was Jonathan. He was the only one. He knows that Jonathan wasn't there when he made the edict. Everyone else did. He already knew it. This is not the first time that Jonathan has done something that made Saul look weak This is now the second time that it's happened, and we're going to see when we get to chapter 20 that Saul is going to try to kill Jonathan for the same thing. Then said he unto all Israel, be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said unto Saul, do what seems good. Therefore Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, give a perfect lot. And Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. And so they kind of play white, uh, black and red on blackjack. Black, it's us. Red, it's you. Priest rolls it, the Urim and Thummim. Answer, it's Saul and Jonathan are taken. And so Saul said, fine, then cast lots between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him and said, I did but taste a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand. And lo, I must die. 
And Saul answered, God do so more and also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. And the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has wrought this great salvation in Israel? God forbid, as the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has wrought with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan that he died not. Now watch verse 46, because it's paramount to the entire chapter. It says, then Saul went up from following the Philistines and the Philistines went to their own place. In other words, net zero. Big battle, a lot of show, a lot of action, a little victory. But Saul got so consumed with the details, the here and now, that he didn't finish the job. He let the Philistines go home. Oh my. Partial victory, the enemies will live to see another day. Well, watch what happens as the fallout. Verse 47. It says, So Saul took the kingdom over Israel and fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab and against the children of Ammon and against Edom and against the kings of Zobah and against the Philistines. And whithersoever he turned himself, watch this, he vexed them. Do you know what that means? He annoyed them. Isn't that productive? He goes to battle. God calls the king to go take territory, take land, build the kingdom, get freedom, you know, get your strength back. And Saul just goes in and he throws some rocks and he annoys them. And he gathered a host and he smote the Amalekites and he delivered Israel out of the hands of them that spoiled them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishui, Melchishua, and the names of his two daughters were these, the name of the firstborn Merab and the name of the younger, thank you. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimeaz. And the name of the captain of the host was Abner. He'll become a paramount character later on, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. And Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. And there was sore war against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or valiant man, he took him unto them. I love what it says in verse 47. It says that Saul took the kingdom. Now, it's no longer Saul's. Remember, Samuel said that the kingdom has been taken from you and it will be given to another man. But Saul refuses the will of God and he says, no, I'm going to take the kingdom for myself. It doesn't say that he took territory. It doesn't say that he brought freedom or deliverance. It says that he took the land. He didn't break their force. He just took it for himself. What we see in Saul is we see failure masked in action. Failure masked in action. He has failed policies, failed leadership. He has zero results in what he's doing, but because of the activity and the action that surrounds what he's doing, it looks like things are happening. It's failure masked in action. I, I ask you tonight this question, just in closing, to consider and ponder. Are there or where are there Philistines in your life that need to fall? When you think about the things that are taking the priority of your strength and your time and your energy and your thought and the productive resources or the productive years of your life. When you think about the things that are suppressing you and keeping you back or they're causing you to sleep and slumber or the things that are restricting you from moving forward. What Philistines are holding you back personally or your family or in your house or in your country? And the question is then, what are you going to do about it? 
there is this thing that can happen to people. It happened to Saul, and it can happen to all of us. I think we all kind of taste it from time to time. Is that there can be this thing in us where we almost, we almost are addicted to failure. Is that when failure happens, it almost is like a, there's almost like a little bit of a relief that happens in us. Author Stephen Pressfield, he wrote a book called Turning Pro, and he says this. He says, there's a difference between failing and being addicted to failure. When we're addicted to failure, we enjoy it. Each time we fail, we are secretly relieved. In other words, if something happens, we, we put in an application, we go for the interview, and then when we get the rejection, there's, there, there, there's, there's rejection, but there's almost like, oh, at least I tried. And we feel better. We, we, we make an attempt to break through or break free from something. And we fail and we think, oh, well, at least I tried. I wonder if maybe God would give a moment of awakening to some of us where we would look around at our life or our society or whatever God has been stirring in your heart lately and there would be something quickening from the Spirit of God inside and a deep voice, a loud voice, but still and small that just says, let's go. And if that's you tonight, I want to pray for you and just ask you right now, if in your spirit there's something saying, let's go, would you stand with me? Would you stand right where you're seated right now? And Father, we pray right now in Jesus' name that you would give us of your spirit, that you would give us the faith like Jonathan had, that you would help us, Lord, though we be poor in resource, though we not have a plan of action, that we don't know how it might come, but yet, Lord, knowing that we need more of you and knowing that we don't want to waste what we've been given of you, would you help us? Would you fill us? Would you empower us? Would you send us? Lord, we need your strength. We need your grace. So fill us now, Lord. Give us faith. Forgive our failures and move us forward for your glory and your namesake. You've put us in the world for such a time as this, at such a time as this. So may we, Lord, represent you. May we know you. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.